0: Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth, I'm Matsuki Avenza. The conventional wisdom about China's recent economic history goes something like this. The Chinese Communist Party implemented market reforms and transformed the country into an export-driven economic powerhouse, one that has lifted up living standards for the once impoverished population and turned China into a global juggernaut. Now, of course, this global juggernaut is being challenged by the staggering impact of the coronavirus. But according to Dexter Roberts, this long-standing narrative about China doesn't tell the full story. Roberts, a journalist who spent 23 years in the country, is the author of the new book The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. He argues that China's economic miracle has left hundreds of millions in the countryside behind. In the course of the book, Roberts travels to Dongguan, a bustling factory town in the Pearl River Delta, where migrant workers and factories struggle to make ends meet. He also visits remote Guizhou province, where life for residents does not match the stereotypical vision of Chinese wealth. Roberts recently spoke with Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski at Asia Society New York. He began by assessing China's handling of the coronavirus outbreak.
1: They started with uh, a a tremendously damaging cover-up. Um, we know we know sort of the dimensions of it. We had a doctor who, in a small uh, WeChat group, uh, was warning other doctors that there was a very strange pneumonia in their hospital, and he was punished. He was reprimanded. He was called in by the public security, the police, and said, uh, "You're spreading dangerous rumors. It's bad for social stability, and there's that's that you can be punished for that in China." And uh, he basically signed something saying, I retract that. A recent research that's just come out suggests that if they had identified uh, the severity of the coronavirus three three weeks earlier, Mm -hmm. there would have been 95% fewer infections. One week was, you know, something, 60% fewer infections. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people, many people got sick, and frankly, people died because of the initial cover-up. And so that was, that's really quite awful what happened then. And they paid for it, and and frankly, we're paying for it around, it's an issue around the world as the coronavirus spreads. Um, After they decided uh, that they were going to treat this more seriously. But by the way, in the interim as well, they had, uh, they had their biggest political meeting of the year in Wuhan, the Wuhan right. Party Congress. Uh, part of the reason it seems that they did not announce it earlier was because they wanted to get their political meeting done, which is very important to them. They had a huge banquet that brought in tens of thousands of families, mm-hmm. um, and at that time officials knew that there was a problem. Right. So th- I find that reprehensible. Uh, the second stage, Something very different. Um, The mass mobilizations, the lockdowns, uh, the the halt to transportation, the halt to the economy, basically, uh, no doubt, stemmed the spread of this uh, spread of the disease. And that's something um, you know, uh, the the mass testing, which you know here in the United States, by by contrast, uh, we're doing a. Atrocious job at. Yeah. We don't know how serious it is because we're not testing anyone, uh, or we're testing very few people so far. Um, those are all things that we could actually learn from.
2: Right, and and I, I really don't want to make this, this conversation all about this issue, but there was one nugget uh, that the WHO official who went uh, really mentioned and stuck with me, which is I don't know the name of these. They're very very high, uh, uh, you know, high quality ventilators. That uh, I guess are, are super important when you have people who do have the disease, or or any kind of high-grade pneumonia, even even dangerous flu, uh, that are uh, once they're not going to you know they're not going to prevent it, but they're going to help save your life uh, potentially. He said that uh, in a good U.S. hospital, and he's seen his share three, four, five is about the right number. He said every hospital he went to uh, in the affected areas had about 40 or 50 of these. And I, you know, is that the kind of thing that surprises you in terms of medical infrastructure that exists there? Uh, or I, I'm not... I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot but, no
1: uh, no I, I think oh, I mean first of all he he went to exactly the hospitals they chose for him to see sure and the idea that most hospitals in China are uh, outfitted with that right, kind of technology right. is just it's just not it's just it's not a fact it's yeah. not true I mean one of the things I deal with in my book is the the great gap between rural right. health care and urban health care and right. it's dramatically different right. so I think Um, Again, urban hospitals can be very impressive in China, and and it's all, it's happened, actually it happened in the years that I was living there. They weren't very impressive in the 90s when I arrived.
2: Now, it must be a very strange experience, I would think, for you to, uh, I actually worked for just a couple of years as a journalist in Russia, and right after I left, this will betray my age, but right after I left, uh, there was a, Uh, Boris Yeltsin was in power and there was a, you know, almost a civil war in Russia, the parliament was attacked and all this, but what's it like to have been there for 20 years and then see from a distance uh, this just colossal story, which of course now is a global story, it's not just a China story. Uh, Did you have any, beyond the things we've talked about already, any just, any thoughts uh, given your experience and your knowledge of the government and the society and everything else as you've watched this unfold?
1: Well, I mean, one—it's—I have a real concern. I have many friends. I have relatives in China as well, yeah. and uh, they, they've been dealing with uh, these lockdowns and, and fears of the fears for their health. So, so it's it's personal in that sense. Uh, the uh, I uh, it's uh, as as working as a journalist there. Frankly, sometimes we've—I felt like we were lurching from. Disaster to you know sure. to amazing economic success. There was, as I said, I covered SARS. Um, yeah. um, you know, I covered China's entry to the World Trade Organization um, and sort of back and forth. So um, I don't really have more to say about it than that. I'm very concerned. Um, I and uh, I'm very pleased to see what it, uh, appears to be uh, China starting to get a handle mm-hmm. on this. Yep, at least in the cities.
2: So let's get to your book. Um, and let's start with a really fundamental question. It's a, it's a provocative title, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. Explain what you mean. What, what, what's the myth in your view? So the myth, uh,
1: the myth of my title, sort of broadly speaking, is that China is becoming more capitalistic. What do I mean by capitalistic? Really what I'm saying is that the, very impressive reform path that they set upon with Deng Xiaoping and continued with China's entry into the World Trade Organization way back in 2001 uh... uh is going to c- keep continuing and what we've seen in the last few years the last five years particularly since uh... the new leadership took the last leadership took over under Xi Jinping is a real stalling of that reform mm-hmm. um, another myth that i'm looking at or that i that i think i'm examining, and I believe is, is a myth, is this idea that China will continue to keep growing its middle class. Depending on how you count it, it's you know, several hundred million strong. People have yep. different ways of counting the middle class. Um, there's been this sense that uh, we saw, we did see a tremendous uh, improvement in living standards in the cities, and many people move into the middle class. This idea that, that this will now continue right. into the countryside, into the uh, lack of a better ex- uh, expression, the other China the mm-hmm. migrant workers mm-hmm. and the farmers, I think is very much suspect. I do not see that happening.
2: Yeah. Uh, so maybe if I can go, uh, before we burrow into that and the stats and, and everything else, to a maybe a, a slightly outsider's, maybe even slightly superficial question, but as an occasional visitor to China. right? Chinese capitalism doesn't seem like a myth at all. It seems like everywhere, I mean, not everywhere, because those of us who go infrequently And go for short periods of time, typically don't go to the rural areas that you spend a great deal of time in, you know, uh, in the book. Um, But, you know, it's hard, even when you just go at one year or two year increments, to not be stunned by pick your metric, you know, just the incredible uh, burst of construction, high speed rail, infrastructure that we wish as Americans, right, that, that we had. Um, the ability to take you know, what's happened recently to just suddenly uh, put up a hospital in 10 days. Um, so a good deal of your book is really about what we're missing, those of us who visit, even if we visit with relative frequency, when we think well, there's no myth here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, undeniably, there's been you know, tremendous progress. They, they made a goal of uh, eliminating absolute poverty, I think, this year and they're basically on track to do that. They have a centennial goal uh, next year, which will be the 100th anniversary of the Communist they're Party. They're very
2: good at setting goals. Right?
1: Yes, they and, are, yeah. yes, and often meeting them. And this goal yeah. is to um, have average per capita income uh, be $10,000, and hmm. it's gonna be a little tougher now with, uh, with the virus and the downturn in the economy, mm-hmm. but they're close if they don't actually make it. Hmm. And it, They'll probably make it shortly after that. So. And there's been, you know, an explosion of wealth in the cities. Um, So what I'm arguing in my book and what I see as the myth is the idea that this tremendous progress that we have seen, including in infrastructure, high-speed rail, has really translated into benefiting the whole population or even most of the population. It really, um, I argue, uh, is something that has had a tremendously positive impact on about half the people's half the people's lives there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's things that are happening that it's also been it's also been accompanied, frankly, by you know a massive explosion in income and and uh, wealth inequality, mm-hmm. which is which is alarming to the leadership themselves because they, they know that people aren't always that can actually cause social tensions and it is causing social tensions mm-hmm. in China.
2: So so and that last thing also would surprise I think you know, occasional readers, viewers, what have you, in this country and other parts of the world, because again, I mentioned in the introduction and you mentioned early on in your book, the implicit bargain is your phrase that was put forward by Deng Xiaoping, what are we now, 30, almost 40 years ago. Yeah, almost 40. That uh, you're you're a citizen of China, Uh, you agree to not uh, push the envelope much uh, as an individual or certainly in a group of any kind in terms of civil rights, political rights, and so forth. In return, uh, our bargain is your, your, uh, you know, your livelihood, your uh, way of life, your material uh, situation uh, will, will be lifted. And I guess, from what you just said and what you say in the book, the bargain is, uh, uh, has worked for a great many people, but then a great many people not, is that right?
1: Yes, I mean, and you know, it's actually, and it was working for most people Mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, And but what what I see is that uh, it it was, it has been very effective. It has been a bargain that the the urban middle class have absolutely bought into. And one one of the myths I look at as well is this idea that with rising living standards and. and uh, higher education levels, people are going to start to demand more uh, civil rights.
2: That was Bill Clinton's uh, thing. Absolutely, wasn't
1: it? Yeah. when he, when he, when he, um, you know, he had his justification for lifting uh, uh, or giving China most favored tra- mm-hmm. nation mm-hmm. trading status. Uh, so this has been the sort of the implicit assumption that those of us that have hoped that there would be civil, uh, uh, political reform to follow economic reform have had about China, and the fact is it just really it, it really hasn't happened and mm-hmm. there's actually some very interesting research out in my book uh... which looks at the fact that basically the richer the richer chinese people the better off chinese people become and better educated the less likely they are to actually protest anything or or try to demand more civil rights it's probably
2: so, true in a lot of places yeah
1: i think right? it's probably true in a lot of places but I, you know and i was guilty of it at one point as well this it was this sort of assumption this you know the NIMBY argument. Not in my backyard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get yourself an apartment, and your life's good. And then a factory starts polluting next to you, and you're going to tell the government you can't have that factory there. And there was a lot of right. env- the environmental movement in China started to a degree from that. Um, but that's just not the case today in China. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I mention is, it, uh, interestingly enough, some of the protests that we have seen by urban Chinese has been actually resistance to the reform of policies to allow more migrant children to enter the schools. Mm-hmm. So the urban parents who are like, the last thing, you know, it's already hard enough to get myself, my
2: child into a good right. school. The last thing I want to do is to allow the rest of China to have the same rights. Talk a little bit about protest movements in China. That's another thing that, you know, I, I would venture that nine out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100 People who don't go to China much, even if they read occasionally about it, think, "Well, that's that. This just doesn't happen, right?" But we know uh, that that it does. And I also, you know, it, it, it's it's if there's a cliche there, born of Tiananmen or or Hong Kong, it's that if they're going to be protests, it's for uh, greater democracy. Mm. It's not true, really, is it? I mean, wh- talk a bit about what you have seen and learned over the years about protest in China mm-hmm. in the mainland
1: yeah, well, what I do look at a lot in the book and what I w- looked at a lot as a reporter before is labor protests right Ro- protests between uh, the migrant workers and the management of these factories for um, in some cases you know very bad abuses that they've that they've uh, that they've faced in the factories um, and those fa- and those kinds of protests by the way continue virtually every day right um, and it's almost uh, it's been a, a contest for the party to try to uh, make sure that they stay localized, to make mm-hmm. sure that they don't link up across uh, different companies, even worse, uh, you know, different industries or cross regionally. So China's, mm-hmm. the government and the party's become very effective at basically isolating protests. Um, typically what they would do is, uh, as a, another scholar referred to, use a combination of repression and responsiveness. So they would go in there and they would, uh, See what the problem was. The workers aren't being paid enough. They try to get the factory manager to pay them more, but at the same time they figure out who actually organized this protest, mm-hmm. and they would give them, you know, very, diff- very, often very um, uh, extreme sentences, put them in jail as a warning to the rest of them. So, so they they both they approached them in both ways, um, but I guess the bigger point is those protests continue, um, and. Uh, you know, they haven't gone away, even when we don't hear about them. Right. Um some of the larger ones have been have been contained. Uh, I, I write about in the book these massive protests around uh, factories that were Adidas right. suppliers. Right. And uh, that sort of thing we haven't seen in a number of years. But I find it hard to believe that uh, we won't see more of that going forward, particularly as the economy continues to slow, which right. I'm quite sure it will. Yeah. That's when the implicit bargain, it wasn't serving the rural people or the migrants as well in the first place. Yep. And it, it it just starts to fray a bit as yep. the economy
2: slows. And there's a lot of things behind that. But maybe this is a good moment just to, uh, to ask you to talk a little bit about, because there's a, there's a lot of different ways you could have written a book and told the story of what we're talking about. Um, I, I think it's impressive and interesting that you chose not just some interesting individuals, but also it seems like the main characters really are places. And uh, I hope I get the pronunciation right, but uh, those main characters would be in one case the village of <laughs> Chun uh, and the sprawling mm-hmm. city of Dongguan, the village where uh, it, you know dirt poor, uh, and and for reasons anyone can understand, whether they've been in China or not, people who want to. Get somewhere where they have a chance at a better livelihood, and then Dongguan, a destination for many of those and other migrants, uh, really uh, a kind of dateline for the juggernaut of Chinese manufacturing and everything else. Talk a little bit about um, those places and how you came to make them main characters in your book.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the first time I, well, the first year that I visited both of those places
2: was 2000, and. Uh, And how long had you been in China at that point? I'd been in
1: China for five years. I was actually 23 years in China. Okay. Uh, So I'd been in China for five years. Um, 1999, China and the US signed the bilateral accession agreement to the WTO. Uh, We knew that China was entering in in 2001, because that agreement between the US and China was the key one. Other countries had to sign agreements. But now that the US and China had it settled, uh, it was going forward. And uh, everyone was there was sort of this ferment about how WTO can change China, and not just change uh, factory towns, which were quite small, much smaller mm-hmm. than, but also the interior, as uh, money and investment and managerial know-how would flow into China. And so I went down there. I was doing a story specifically on. The, it was a cover story for Business Week magazine. It was called the Great Migration. So I wanted to. I went there to see migrants who worked in factories, who also came and, and also mm-hmm. hoped to see their villages and. Uh, Went to Dongguan. I think it was. I'd been to Dongguan before covering the growth of the Taiwanese community, were basically make up the factory managers yep. there. Before, I think the year before. So it was maybe my second visit. Um, but I went there this time to talk to the to the workers and found, met these workers, and uh, they were uh, extremely interesting and and good people, open people, and. Um, Next thing I knew, a, a couple months later, I was heading back to their village in Guizhou, to the place you mentioned, yep. Binghuatsun, to meet them. And uh, this was a real uh, eye-opener for me. If you remember back then, it was also uh, in China, there was a lot of attention on the, the early, on the internet boom, sweeping China, and a lot of media, including Business Week, where I worked.
2: Another thing that they thought was gonna change the whole country. That's right, right, that's
1: right. And I, just for whatever my own preferences, was not really that interested. I, to, I, didn't, I didn't go to China to, you know, write about people that had done their Harvard MBAs and returning Chinese and got, worked at McKinsey and then decided to start a company. So I, was, I specifically was interested in meeting these people that I had some contact with, but more importantly, I knew they were out there and I knew they were important to the economic model of China. So anyway, I went there and I went to Dongguan, I went to Binghuatsun, and uh, both those places, uh, you know, they. They, they fit the bill. They, 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 that was the migrant model back yeah. then.
2: Yeah, huh? And how many times? Uh, how much time ultimately would you say you spent in these places? Because it certainly seems from the book like it's a lot.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I've actually lost track of the number <laughs> of times I visited. Um, uh, I visited the village, you know, many times. I visited Dongguan dozens and dozens of times, yeah. uh, and for other stories as well. Um, and just to, just quickly. Those places are very relevant today for China as China so uh, maybe we're getting I'm getting ahead of us but okay. but 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 now now the idea is as, as China as the Chinese economic model tries to change as factories are automated, yes. these same migrant workers are trying to sort of reinvent themselves and they're being told by the government in no cer- uncertain terms it's time to go home and figure right. out a new way right. to to function so places like Bing Huat Sun today is trying to reinvent itself, in their case, as sort of a, almost an ecotourism place, which would be wonderful, because it's a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. It has wonderful food, by the way, spicy food from Guizhou, and uh, uh, a, little, a little similar to what, you know, the Chuancai, Sichuan food. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, it's just stunningly beautiful, these green mountains, sort of karst, uh, karst mountains, like in neighboring Guangxi. Yeah.
0: We're gonna take a short break here to relay an important message about the coronavirus outbreak from Asia Society. At Asia Society, the health and safety of our staff, visitors, volunteers, members, and communities is our first priority. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we have made the difficult decision to close our New York headquarters beginning March 16th. Many of our locations and offices worldwide are taking similar measures. Commonly referred to as the coronavirus, COVID-19's impact is felt around the world, and the virus does not discriminate based on race, class, or national origin. Asia society remains committed to our founding principles of promoting mutual understanding and strengthening links between the people, leaders, and institutions of Asia and the world. At this important time, Asia Society vows to continue our critical work, and we will use our digital tools to continue programming via webcasts, podcasts, social media, our website, and other channels. And now let's get back to Dexter Roberts and Tom Nagorski.
2: I remember about the same time, actually, about 20 years ago, uh, I went to, um, to China. And we were uh, focused on what was then, you know, still a, a kind of new world of getting out of the old state-run factories in some places, and we were invited uh, to visit as journalists with um, people who were, I don't know, you know, widget factory number two or, or what have you in, in Shanghai, and they brought us to the to a restaurant where all these people were just being picked up, basically, because that was a dead industry and said, here, you're going to work in the service sector and you are going to be a cook and you are going to be a waiter and you are going to be this, this, So when you go back to the village, did they dream up the ecotourism or did the government say, hey, this is going to be a good thing for you to find some success?
1: I think, I think with encouragement from the government, um, mm-hmm. Guizhou was basically anointed a, a tourism right, center. Right. Um, not only that, they have. it's also supposed to be the big data center for China. So you have this... Uh, sort of these awesome, this awesome uh, industri- uh, uh, business park outside the capital city mm-hmm. where you have big investors, the big top China uh, telecom companies, China Mobile, China Telecom. Mm-hmm. You have Foxconn, the, the supplier oh, for right. Apple. They've all set up shop there and that's very much government mandated. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on the tourism side, so it's, it's really a combination. On the tourism side you also have um, There's a program they have where they designate uh, a number of top state enterprises or successful companies and they are supposed to go and contribute to the national economic health by investing in places like Guizhou. And they have been told in Guizhou to to set up quote unquote ecotourism. What it is in fact is in some cases these massive sometimes garish uh, resorts that are spread around the country. And frankly, I think they're going to struggle to actually fill them with tourists.
2: Right. But a lot of that at least seems like it is a potential road for people who, you know, the migrant labor doesn't, doesn't work anymore, the model doesn't work, as a potential road to something that could, you know, wend your way back into the Chinese middle class. But your book certainly suggests that road is is fraught at the moment, right?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, so that's on the entrepreneurial side. There's all sorts of pitfalls. I have friends who've gone back and have basically become bankrupt because they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have the skills to be um, business people. And uh, actually, a lament I heard a lot from migrant friends of mine was, I just spent 20 years far from my village, and I go back there and I'm a stranger, and Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to set up a business and you know, I don't even I even talk funny now because, because I you I learned all this, that. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and doesn't necessarily always mean a successful model, and that's on the entrepreneurial side. On the service side, uh, there's been this hope from the government that uh, yes, that a large number they want to they want to make a more service-driven economy, more consumption economy, and there's been this idea that somehow they will find better-paying service jobs. Um, mm-hmm. They can be trained for them, and whether it's in you know online commerce companies are developing apps for mobile phones they're supposedly s- supposed to do that but the reality is much of the service j- j- jobs that they've done are very low end and, right. and um, I mean one of the most common jobs you now see in the big cities is motorcycle delivery people sure and it's a brutal business they yeah. they you know they're paid by how many how many packages they deliver they have no time to ha- eat right. they have no right. time to stop as a result there's a terrible uh, online occupational uh, safety
2: issue. There's all these terrible traffic yeah, accidents. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably, that's in the
1: cities, that's the most common new migrant worker job.
2: Right. And we skated past this before, but when you talk about a broken model for migrant labor and for places like Dongguan, I assume uh, a big part of that is that cheap labor, which was the calling card, right, for, for the incredible uh, growth in, in, in much of, uh, Certainly, that part of China is now—they're uh, getting beat in terms of the, ch- the low price of labor mm. by the likes of Vietnam, Bangladesh, right? I mean, is that absolutely?
1: Yeah. I mean, you—this might even be surprising. Mexico and Malaysia now are yeah. apparently cheaper yeah. for your average manufacturing wage. Right. So, China, in an extent, you know, has priced themselves out of out of that. Um, the so this 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 is this is a real sub- reason. This is a reason why they're trying to make this momentous economic shift right now. The old yeah. factory to the world model doesn't work. Right. They want to keep their manufacturing, by the way. They just want to automate it and bring in robots. And there's a whole uh, very um, detailed and very well-financed government plan to try mm-hmm. to drive the, uh, the automation of factories.
2: Right. Now, I, I, I do want to, um, well, actually, let me ask you another question before we get to some forecasting and some prognostication. <laughs> When did you, what, you know, we, we have so many people who come to the Age of Society, uh, I mean, background in all kinds of countries. China certainly seems to lead the way uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and I always like to ask people who are not initially from China how they first got the bug or how they first went. And I know you studied, but when did you first go? When did you first sort of think, uh, was it as a student or as the, visit, the first visit you made that you kind of figured? Or maybe you didn't figure that you're going to be a 23-year guy in China.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I started to study Chinese in Stanford right? at Stanford, yeah. um, and it, 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 t- this will date me, but it was it was so far back that my advisor told me you should study Japanese because that's where the economic future is. Uh, so it was the 80s. <laughs> we're, we're
2: in the same vintage. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, and I like to pretend, uh, although I always ad- I never I always admit that this is not the case, but I like to say. Well, you, you we might think that I, I was am amazingly for, you know far seen and I knew that China yeah. would become the world's second-largest economy, which is you know nonsense. I was really more just uh, stubborn and interested in China. Um, I'd started I took an introductory class to Chinese philosophy and started to study Chinese politics and economics. So that was at, in college. Um, right after graduation, I continued language studies in Taipei. Mm-hmm. That was back when Taipei was still. Now most students from the United States would probably almost all of them go to the, the mainland, but back then it was different. So that was um, in 1988, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, fast forward, I did some time here in New York at graduate school and so on. Um, I, I uh, 90 in 95, I moved to Beijing, and I uh, um, had decided that I wasn't going to become a professor, which I thought I might do at one point, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be a journalist, and so I headed to Beijing.
2: Yeah, wow. Timing is everything. Right? <laughs> yeah. So l- let's do a little forecasting before we wrap things here. Um, I, you, you get the sense, not only from what you're saying here, but but from your book, that there's some dark clouds on this horizon that even before the coronavirus, has, well, before the coronavirus has seemed very rosy for China. Uh, whether it's journalists writing about it, scholars writing about it. Um, and uh, you've mentioned some of the reasons for that, uh, income inequality being a big one, some you know social unrest or whatever. Uh, that said, we've had an awful lot of people on this stage at the Asia Society over the years who, for whatever reason, mm. have said, you know, uh, those rough times are coming for China, and bubbles are going to burst and what have you. And yet there seems To you know, year after year, they seem to whether they make their GDP mark or whatever, uh, the uh, the doomsayers are proven wrong often. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. So, uh, not that you're prognosticating doom, but uh, why convince our audience that uh, uh, that they should be not so bullish on China at the moment?
1: So the argument that I make in the book and I, and I believe is that China's facing really the biggest economic transition since Deng Xiaoping. And that's mm-hmm. moving from this investment driven uh, factory to the world model uh, and uh, based on selling relatively low cost goods to the world. And uh, that, of course, as, we, as we've discussed, has been based on, on uh, low cost labor and that, that model is no longer viable. And the Chinese government, you know, to give them absolute credit, they're very aware of this. Right. They they know that they have to shift. Right. It's extremely ambitious. They want to move to a far more domestic consumption-driven economy, a far more service-driven economy. They also want to move up the tech ladder, so they're producing, uh, you know, goods of uh, of a far higher technology content that it can be globally competitive. Um, so the argument of my argument of my book is. That's a wonderful thing to do, and, and, I, and I wish them success in it. I, I don't think it's possible for them to actually become uh, a high-tech company. That I'm, I'm sorry, a high-tech uh, economy that's globally successful, producing these you know, globally uh, competitive uh, goods uh, in technology, as, um, and most importantly, uh, be uh, uh, powered to a great degree by the domestic economy if about half the population is systematic, so systematically left out, mm-hmm. and that's just not on the not on the income level. Right, and they can't spend, so they can't become the consumers to replace the world's consumers to a degree. But they're also getting education that's that's very bad. Right. I, mm-hmm. We have the Chinese government won't um, uh, won't you know fess up to some of some of these numbers, but. Independent researchers that have done very rigorous work in the Chinese mm-hmm. countryside find that dropout rates in high school for real kids are extremely high. You know, there may be, it may be something like 25% of, of people with rural hukou right. are finishing high school, according to some people's estimates. Um, you can't have a population where half of the people are being left behind, they don't have a lot of money to spare, they're getting poorly educated their health may not be very good, yep. Yep. Um, and and expect this transition to succeed. Yep. And so I always come back to that. I also have seen the tremendous progress. I've seen all the problems as well. But I come back to that. I just don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. And again, they know they need to change this. Yeah. Um, they did announce, I mean, part of it is, uh, again, These there's a couple crucial policies, the Household Registration Policy or the hukou Policy that is, re- is responsible for people getting far worse you know, education and health care. The dual land system, which makes it very (laughs) difficult for people in the countryside to monetize their land. Back in 2013, at one of their third plenum meetings, there was this bold blueprint for growth, which basically saw these policies done away with. And they've made virtually no progress. Yeah.
2: Um, And I guess the the migrant labor model being, you know, uh, so problematic now. I mean, there's not much, to migrate for anymore, right? I mean, there is, but it's not. So to what extent has that, uh, do the villagers in in the village, and I'm now being watching, sorry. to what extent do they, uh, would you say, do they still wanna uh, go someplace else? And is it just a matter that there isn't an obvious place to go to anymore? Or are they trying to make a go of it with all these new industries that are in the province? That you Many mentioned? of
1: them are, would are would love to or are happy if they already have, have I mean they're they're trying to make a go of it back in their hometowns. Right. right. And most of the people that I first met in the Moes that I first met in two thousand told me at the time. Yeah. All I want to see is my village develop and someday after slaving away you know, doing this this very difficult work in the factories, I want to save enough money to go back. Right. And start right. a little business or do something. So they would like to be there. Yeah. Um, so that's not uh, in, in not all not all of them. There's another there's another person in my book, uh, Rubois, who had no right. intention to ever go back. So okay. he's trying to still trying to make a go of it in the city. Um, but the problem isn't necessarily that they have to go back to their village. It's it's just really unclear how they can yeah. make an economic go of it now.
2: Yeah. Is there anything I'm putting you on the spot in all these ways because you're not an ep- epidemiologist and you're not. An advisor to the government. Is there something you think the Chinese ought to be doing or could be doing that would mitigate against some of these problems you're talking about? That might, you know, if you put put yourself in the in yes. the next plenum meeting, or I mean, what, yes. what? Yeah. Well,
1: you know, I think they they've actually they've actually mapped out the path ahead mm-hmm. They, they, mm-hmm. in the 2013 third plenum. They they um, they've spent a lot of money on trying to improve rural healthcare and education, which is admirable. A lot right. of money. Right. Um I would argue that the thing that they that they absolutely need to do and they 've done very little on is simply to end these policies the the, the, the household registration or the hukou policy the HUCO, yeah. and the dual land system, and actually allow people to work where they want to work, right. bring their children right. there with them, let their children you know some of this costs money, some of it doesn 't there 's an argument about how much money it costs to bring yep. n- integrate migrants into the city and their families? Some policymakers in China think that actually they're they're very hardworking. They'll they'll generate taxes, and it mm-hmm. could, it doesn't have to cost that much. But there's this fear that it costs too much, and that's a problem. Um, so I would say stepping away and saying, okay, these policies were created in the 50s in in both mm-hmm. cases, they're ancient history, and they've done a very good job at moving away from other uh,
2: legacy yep. policies. Yep. Why keep um, these?
1: And why keep these? And there's a, there's a, we could get into why. There's a number of reasons, I think, why it's difficult. Yeah. But that's what they need to do.
2: But well, without all those reasons, any what, what would you say? Is there any chance that those are going to? I mean, they're not afraid, I, they're not afraid of taking you know, stark measures when they feel that they're feel Seven necessary. years
1: ago, they, yeah. told the, they told their country and they told the, the foreign journalists, the, the people that were paying attention that were not from their country, that they were going to, yeah. to quickly move to reform yeah. them step-by-step. Step and and here we end. are. Yeah, and here we are. I, I, there is, there's a number of issues. Um, it's, uh, the, the localities, the cities don't want to pay the new social welfare costs of integrating the migrants. Right. Um, a big one, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, is r- urban people in China are not really ready to see their schools and their medical clinics um, suddenly filled with a lot of people that previously, we're not allowed in.
0: That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia In Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and keep up with everything Asia Society related by following us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.